is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Barch. I'm Charles Feldman. It's here. The long holiday weekend. Maybe you're at the airport or headed to one. Remember air travel wasn't so smooth? The last time we went through a holiday travel period when it was easier to get somewhere with a horse and buggy? Then there was the Southwest debacle. There were the winter storms. There was the FAA computer problem. Now, there's a power outage at the International Terminal at JFK in New York. So we'll go in-depth into what to expect the next few days if you're flying and whether you should have just stayed home. A new study looks into COVID infection and immunity. We'll tell you what it found. And President Biden has a 2024 campaign strategy, but it could all be for nothing if he faces somebody other than that guy named Trump. Mm. Worry seems to be growing over artificial intelligence. We talked about this yesterday. We're going to go in-depth again about whether AI might be too dangerous. And we end by talking to a woman who calls herself the science tooth fairy. She says, baby teeth can tell us a lot. You know, I'm gonna, I, I don't know if I'm so worried about artificial intelligence. I'm more worried about just intelligence in general. Well, we could always use more, yeah, so artificial or otherwise, so there's that aspect of it too. Yeah, we start though with the uh, long holiday weekend and air travel and what flyers can expect. Back with us is our friend Joe Brancatelli, business travel and airline industry analyst and is the uh, of course business traveler advisories website uh, joesentme.com. Joe, how you doing? Well, if you're having me on, it's always terrible, right? I mean, we never, we never, Charles and Rob, we never get to say, boy, travel's great this week. There's always a crash or a meltdown or a strike or a, or a fire, all of them. Yeah, and you know, so welcome it, to the holiday. You're right. And, and, and sadly, that, that does mean that that's because travel has become such a pain in the you know what. Uh, what is the likelihood that if somebody is going away for this, holiday weekend, short as it may be, that they will get to their destination? If they get to the destination, can they come back from their destination? What's the prognosis? Well, it's better than we had over the Southwest meltdown over the holiday. Um, On the other hand, this is the busiest weekend already since the new year, so airports will be crowded. Uh, The good news is, by and large, domestically, we're doing okay seems like international is where we're having the real problem this time. And, you know, air travel sometimes feels like it's where we get our masochistic tendencies out because we deal with the crowds. We deal with problems at airports. We deal with problems on planes. We deal with delays. We deal with cancellations. When will we have had enough? I guess when artificial intelligence gets better, because my (laughs) only conclusion is we have an air system built by artificial intelligence. No one wants what we have. No one is willing to change it. And even people with the power say, Secretary Pete, the transportation secretary, has done nothing to make our lives better in the last two years, which you, which is surprising considering he was perceived to be an activist Democratic secretary of, of transportation. But is that because there are so many obstacles in the way of trying to do something? The airlines tend to be resistant to anything that costs them too much money, and the federal bureaucracy is resistant to just about everything. Uh, so is that the reason? 
Well, that is some of the reason. But remember, a couple of years ago, we were fighting over tarmac delays, people being literally held hostages at, at, you know, on the runways at LAX or JFK for hours at a time. And the Transportation Department said this would be under Obama. Uh, every time you hold someone more than three hours on a plane without letting them get off, it's $25,000 per passenger. Tarmac holds have disappeared. If you tell the airlines we will fine you for stupid behavior that would only exist if it was designed by artificial intelligence, they fixed the problem. That seems to be lacking. The will seems to be lacking this time around. And to be honest, Charles, I don't know why. And even more worrisome, we do have a safety problem now, it seems like, that really transcends all of this because we can complain about bad seats or bad food. But if we don't get to where we're going safely, that's even more problematic. If we could snap our fingers and, and make you the transportation secretary and give you a lot of power and a lot of funding and resources, what would you do? Take a vacation. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but, but that's, that, what, they, that's what, they, what the real people do. What would you do? Oh, I, I think the first thing I would do is change the way fares are laid out by the airlines and maybe add some seat room back require the airlines to have a minimum amount of seat room because that's what really makes people unhappy. They get, you know, there's a million things wrong with air travel. But then when you get on the plane, you're stuck in cramped little quarters for hours on end. And I think that is one area where the government could fit, could step in and say, you know, this isn't even safe. We haven't even proven we can evacuate a plane in an emergency situation with the seats now so close together. So that's where I'd move first. All right. Thank you uh, so much, Uh, Joe Brancatelli, always with the uh, bright, positive outlook, a business travel and airline industry analyst. A new study from the University of Washington has found COVID infection can give you good protection against symptomatic illness for about 10 months. It says that protection seems strong against all variants as well. Dr. Jeffrey uh, Klausner is an epidemiologist and professor at USC Keck School of Medicine. has been with us many times. Doctor, thanks for coming back again. Yes, happy to be here. So what do you think of this study? Does it sound uh, convincing to you? And, and if so, are you surprised? Well, this is actually a study of studies. So this study put together 65 different studies, uh, including one of my own, from 19 different countries, and uh, the study found that that people who recovered from infection were highly protected against um, symptomatic illness, but most importantly, very strongly protected up to 10 months, 90% protection up to 10 months for severe disease, which, which means hospitalization or death. So when it says symptomatic illness, that still leaves open the possibility that you can get reinfected with COVID in a shorter time span, but you just might not even notice it? Right. I mean, it it was essentially, you know, about um, 50, 60 percent protective against symptomatic illness, which would be cold-like symptoms, you know, runny nose, mild fever, sore throat. Um, And, you know, that's going to be the case as we learn to live with SARS-CoV-2 is people may have a repeat infection, you know, on average, probably about once a year, like other cold viruses. But the good news is that people who've recovered are very strongly protected, if not more protected than people who've only been vaccinated and never been infected.
Does it stand to reason that somebody who is infected and vaccinated then is even better prepared, or is it kind of at a certain point you just plateau out? No, there's actually good evidence for that. We call that hybrid immunity or mixed immunity, that you have immunity due to recovery from infection, immunity due to uh, vaccination. Um, As soon as you get vaccinated, you have a very high level of protection against infection for uh, many months, and uh, that will protect you against getting infected. But the you know reassuring news is that if you are uh, recovered from infection, that you are protected against ending up in the hospital um, for at least 10 months. And 10 months, uh, it's probably longer, but this study of studies only went out to 10 months, so really can't say longer than 10 months. And the authors conclude that you know the U.S. has to update its policy and that people who have recovered from infection should have equal recognition of immunity as people who've been vaccinated. Just a hypothetical here, but uh, as we're showing how long this immunity lasts and uh, and you get even more immunity if you're uh, vaxxed and protected. So if we get more people vaccinated and more people getting the boosters and uh, consequently more people who are recovering from a covid infection, isn't that at some point going to be enough that it will keep any future variants of covid able to keep it from getting a foothold? That's a good point and suggest that you probably read the paper is that, um, you know, as the virus becomes uh, less efficiently able to circulate because, you know, more people have at least short term immunity against infection from prior infection or vaccination, the uh, virus doesn't have as many susceptible people to infect. And that reduction of susceptible individuals slows down the spread and makes it less likely that new variants will appear. Yeah, we, we we actually surprise surprise we actually did read the <laughs> the study, uh, but also in reading the study, it was the studies weren't conducted with the most recent variant that that is now sort of becoming the dominant one at least in this part of the country, right? So how confident can we be that perhaps it's met its match with this new variant? Right. So, you know, they had to do look back studies, right? So you needed people with infection, then you had to follow up them. After infection, you know, six to eight months later, we we are up to 10 months. So, you know, it is true. We don't have the data yet on people who've been more recently infected with the newest variant. But, you know, we don't really expect biology to be dramatically different and our immune system to be dramatically different. I mean, it confounds me why my colleagues, um, you know, at the NIH and other leadership you know, positions didn't accept this early on. But this is basic biology, immunology, that people who recover from infection have good immunity and are strongly protected against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, epidemiologist and professor at USC Keck School of Medicine. And still ahead is Bing's. I love saying that. Bing. Bing. Yeah, it's Bing's new AI and its alter ego, Sydney, it's called Sydney, just too troublesome right now. And we think we know what the tooth fairy does with all those teeth. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. Well, no, actually, you probably can't imagine. <laughs> Maybe not. Right now, though, President Biden insists he can beat former President Trump again in 2024 if uh, Biden runs for reelection and if Trump is the nominee. Mr. Biden's pledge is sick with that strategy that he used in 2020. But what happens if Trump is not the nominee? 
the race in that case will look a lot different and potentially problematic for Mr. Biden. Mike Lux is co-founder of the political consulting firm Democracy Partners. He's a former member of the Clinton and Obama administrations. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Absolutely. Happy to be here. So is this an indicator that uh, Mr. Biden's main uh, campaign strength is if he's running against Trump? But other than that, he doesn't really have a path. Oh, no, I think I think that's completely wrong. Uh, I think that the article uh, uh, that that you were talking about is completely wrong. uh, you know, I'm 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 reminded of um, one of my heroes in in life and in basketball was John Wooden, uh, and John Wooden uh, used to tell his team, "Don't don't worry so much about the scouting report. Uh, uh, we we know who the other team is, but if we do what we do well, uh, we're we're going to win this game." And um, uh, I I think that that's how the Biden team is approaching this. They are getting ready to run. Uh, on Joe Biden's record, um, on Joe Biden's agenda, which is extremely popular with voters, uh, the the bills that he got passed, the policy changes that he made uh, over the last two years have, are are incredibly popular with voters, um, and he's going to run as an effective uh, uh, president, uh, and and, um, and I think he's going to win whoever the Republican opponent is. Uh, the the Republicans don't have a lot of good choices. All of their major candidates who can win the nomination uh, are uh, as extreme, or in some cases, more extreme than Donald Trump. Uh, and um, so I think we can beat whoever they put up against us. So you're saying then that it, that they don't really need to tailor uh, his campaign, the president's campaign strategy, toward any particular candidate because it doesn't really matter in the end? No, it really doesn't matter in the end because all of the Republicans are for really terrible things. Um, all, all, all of the Republicans uh, uh, want want to do things that the American people don't want to do. They they all want to uh, repeal, for example, the bill that that uh, allows seniors to get insulin for thirty five dollars uh, a bottle. Uh, they they all <laughs> want to. Uh, Roll back, uh, the, you know, uh, a lot of the spending on uh, on infrastructure. Whatever they say, they all have a track record on Social Security and Medicare. Whatever they say, of of wanting to roll it back, wanting to cut it back, um, and they're and they're you know the Republicans are like, oh, we don't want to cut Social Security. Well, why do you keep introducing bills that cut <laughs> Social Security? There's a there's a bill that they just introduced to raise the retirement age to seventy. Uh, they 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 have the work till you die program, um, so their their agenda that you know, which which sucks up to big business, which doesn't do anything to roll back oil prices, which doesn't do anything to challenge uh, big monopolies. Their 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 agenda is something that the American people are going to recognize. Well, Mike, Mike, I wanted to ask you about because in just about every focus group that that I've heard about uh, when they talk about uh, even among Biden supporters, the concern is of his age and even among people who are fans of Joe Biden and like him and think he's done a good job as president. They indicate that they perhaps would would rather see somebody else run for the Democratic nomination. These are huge obstacles, uh, especially in the age question to overcome. Uh, let's let's say that Trump is not the nominee and it's somebody younger and more dynamic. Uh, that's a big obstacle for Biden, isn't it? Well, it's an obstacle. You know, there are no perfect candidates. Uh, 
they're, they're, uh, I, I have, I've been in presidential politics since 1984. I've worked on eight different presidential campaigns. I've never yet seen a perfect candidate. And so, yeah, he's, he's a little older than, than is ideal. But as long as he uh, is out there showing he's healthy, showing he can do the job, getting things done uh, we, we, the way he's done in the last two years, uh, I, I think he'll be fine. Is age, I, I, would, is, I would I would I would far rather have uh, an an eighty year old who's who's sane and sensible and wanting to get things done for the American people than than have uh, uh, you know someone who uh, is obsessed with book burning. I'm I'm curious, is is ageism, in in your view, sort of the last ageism that seems to be acceptable to some people? (laughs) I think there's something to that. You know, uh, we are uh, when you take when you take care of of yourself, when you follow good health practices the way Joe Biden does, um, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, the health problems that that we always talk about with, with age uh lesson uh, a lot and you and you look at uh uh you look at joe biden uh he is trim he is in good shape he works out five days a week uh he eats healthy um he you know clearly from the state of the union he has the ability to uh you know push back on on uh you know ridiculous things that people are doing uh um, uh, the, 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 this is a guy who, uh, who has it together and knows what he's doing and is in good shape. So I worry a lot less, uh, uh about him than, than I would about somebody who's, uh, who's a few years younger and, uh, yeah. uh, uh, and, and, and is not in that kind of shape and does not have that kind of mind. All right, Mike, uh, Mike Lux, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Co-founder of the political consulting firm, Democracy Partners. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. We talked yesterday about Bing's new AI program being tested. It's alter ego, kind of, uh, that called itself Sydney. Got into a very strange conversation with a New York Times tech columnist who said that Sydney was in love with him and how its dark side wanted to do things like steal nuclear codes and engineer a deadly virus. Yeah, it, it was so uh, weird that it freaked the columnist out. And concern is growing that uh, auto, uh, auto, that uh, artificial intelligence might be a little too real and potentially harmful in the sense that it could manipulate people who might not be, you know, sort of savvy about what it's really doing. Um, so with us now to help try to explain all this is Gary Marcus, an AI expert and professor emeritus of psychology and neuroscience at New York University. Gary, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So I I read, as I'm sure you did, that that long, I think it was a two-hour, in quotes, conversation that the uh, New York Times columnist had uh, with Bing's new AI uh, 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 search engine, I guess it is, in the end. Uh, and it is kind of scary uh, because it it seems almost too human. Yet, you know, I, I get it. Then we had some experts on yesterday that talked about how you know it's only doing what it's programmed to do, and it's giving you kind of answers that it it thinks you want to hear. But that said, is there not still a danger that for naive people, and the planet is filled with such, that that kind of thing could be very dangerous? 
Well, first I would say it doesn't think at all. It really is just a parrot. Um, it's not very smart. It's not very real in some sense. Um, but it's drawing on a lot of things that other humans said at particular times. And it's trying to copy that in some sense. And to your, to your question, I think it's quite dangerous. It's quite dangerous because it doesn't know what it's talking about. So if it asks Kevin Roos to get a divorce, it has no idea what the consequences of that might be. It doesn't understand that hinting at someone that they might get a divorce might get them to think about that when they w wouldn't otherwise. It doesn't think about what the emotional costs of it, that might be or the financial costs, the legal costs. Um, it gives advice that it <coughs> excuse me, literally does not understand what it's saying. And because it looks so human-like, even though it isn't an actual human, it's easy for people to get fooled by it. It's even scarier, I think, when it gives medical advice. It can do things like make up references to articles that don't even exist, and yet they sound plausible and authoritative. And so people may well do dangerous things inadvertently, worry about drug interactions. And then there's another problem, which is that bad actors can abuse these systems and use them to make fake information about things like vaccines or the environment or whatever they might like to do and to make misinformation at a scale that we've never seen before. I think that's something we should be very worried about. So there's a lot to worry about here. Yeah, there is. And, and you know, we kind of touched on that yesterday, uh, talking about maybe this should be regulated in some way. But how would you do that? And can you? Because this technology is still very much in its infant stages. And as you know, government doesn't always understand new technology when it comes up. I remember the guy talking about the uh, as the internet became a big thing, he talked about the internet being a series of tubes, and uh, he thought that was an accurate way of describing it. Perhaps it was, but but it just showed how really not very well informed about new technology they are. So how how could something like this be regulated so that it is not dangerous for people who might not know better? And and I realize I'm saying that we have to protect people from themselves. Well, we have to protect them from themselves and from bad actors, which. Um, you know, people who want to abuse the tools. I wrote an article recently in the Scientific American about this. Um, one of the things that I think we need to do seriously is, is to consider having uh, laws that make it a crime to lie if you do it at scale, if you do it a lot. So, you know, right now you can tell more or less any lie and unless you physically cause somebody harm or um, you malign their reputation or something like that, it's difficult to do anything about it. Um, but I think we have to take a new attitude, which is that if you make lots and lots of lies, either because you're a bad actor or because you're negligent and you make a chatbot that has a lot of uh, medical consequences or things like that, that you should be liable for it, um, possibly in new ways. So I think we're going to have to find new ways to hold people responsible um, if they use these tools uh, yeah, or if they create them. Yeah, you, you know, uh, often people say when suggestions have come up just this past week because of this particular uh, issue, and some people say, well, you know, maybe we should put it back in the in the can. Maybe we should stop it. And then the answer that people give is, well, you can't. It's progress. And and once something is going forward, you can't go backwards. And then I thought about that. And that actually isn't true. Uh, we did do that with technology. We did that with the supersonic transports. Uh, it was a giant leap forward in aviation. And for the first time that I could think of uh, in our history, recent history, we took a technology, decided that it was good, but it was also dangerous to the environment. It was not cost effective. And we actually closed it down and we stopped it and we said, nope, we're going to go back to it's going to be slower. It's going to be more uncomfortable, but it's better in the long run to not go there. 
Is that the case, do you think, with with this kind of search engine that they're coming up with? Might it be better to say, yeah, maybe this shouldn't be released, period? Well, you know, with the supersonic things, people are making another effort now 20 years later, um, and maybe they'll get it right the second time around. I, I would say that there's nothing wrong in principle with a chat bot if it doesn't pretend to be what it's not. But the fact is that we don't know how to make the technology reliable right now. And I think the technology has been released prematurely. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see Microsoft walk it back, for example. Um, you know, a couple other chatbots were introduced and released because they, they were problematic. Um, I think that the fact is that <laughs> right now these systems are just imitating language without understanding it, and that makes them reckless. And we shouldn't have that. Maybe someday someone build a better version of this that might, for example, be a companion to an elderly person that, that has lost their friends. And, and maybe some good will come of that. But it, but it's but, but it's excuse me for interrupting, but it, it does sound like the answer to my question and correct me if I'm wrong, is that, yes, they should shut it down. I think they should shut down the current thing. However, I, I will add that I think it's okay if they do research on it, but distributing it at the scale is a problem. And there's a second problem, which is by and large, the community of machine learning people now know how to build these things. And so I don't think we can put it back in the box entirely. So I think we could say, hey, Microsoft, you did a bad job of this release, and we don't want to see it again until you do it well. I don't think that will protect us from, say, troll farms that will download similar kinds of software from the web and put it to bad purposes. So shutting down big public things that might might be the right move until they're better. Um, but we're also going to have to have defenses against things like misinformation because the troll farms are going to start using it. All right. Uh, thank you very much. That's uh, Gary Marcus, an AI expert. So remember when you were a kid and you'd lose a tooth? Mm -hmm. uh, you'd put the tooth under your pillow, and when you got up in the morning, it was gone. And in my case, uh, it started out, there would be a dime, and mm -hmm. then I think because of inflationary yep. pressures, it went up to a quarter. Uh, I always thought, when are we going to get to a buck? We I know. Never, we, we never, never got, quite there. got there. Never, never got, got there. I know. But but that was the uh, the truth fairy is what we were told. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happened to those teeth? That's the other question. I had a deep questions about that when I was a kid. What is the tooth fairy doing with the teeth? Realistically, they were probably thrown out, but it turns out that scientists... I thought they were selling it on the black market. Or making some kind of weapon. But again, <laughs> I'm a dark, dark person I know, I know. with a dark soul. It turns out that scientists are studying baby teeth right now, and they're learning more about a child's physical and mental health from the study of those baby teeth. With us now is the science tooth fairy herself, Dr. Erin Dunn. She is a psychiatric epidemiologist with Massachusetts General Hospital and studies teeth. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Right off the bat, what can you learn by looking at baby teeth? So baby teeth are absolutely amazing tools that we can learn all sorts of things about. I think one of the best ways to think about teeth is that they're similar to trees and how they develop. And if you were to take a cross-section of a tree, you would notice these incremental lines that record every year of that tree's growth. So our teeth actually have similar incremental growth lines. And that's one of the things that we've been studying, but it's just one, one set of tools within a whole suite of kinds of measurement tools that we've been using to try to extract different kinds of information from teeth. Okay, so you get a hold of someone's baby tooth. What kinds of things can you find out from it? 
So we do a lot of things when we get teeth into, into the lab. So we look, for example, we look at the tooth um, just with the naked eye. You know, so can we see differences based on color, um, the presence of cavities and things of this sort? We start taking photos of it. Um, we then do um, imaging of the tooth to try to understand, for example, if the enamel might be thinner or thicker. And the idea is that because baby teeth start forming early in development, so they start forming in the first or the second trimester of life and continue forming over the first few years of life, the hope is that we might be able to use teeth as kind of fossilized records of people's early life experiences. So in other words, maybe kids who've been exposed to early life stressors, for example, might have thinner enamel compared to kids who were not exposed. Or we might see that the growth lines in their teeth that are similar to those tree rings might look a little bit darker um, or be wider, similar to the way that if a tree had a stressful year based on not having enough sun or water, um, you would see differences in those growth lines as well. So those are just a few of the examples of the ways that we've been using teeth to look at early life stress. And uh, let's let's get this out of the way before we go on. Uh, how do you get the teeth? Do you are are you the person who breaks in and takes the tooth from under the pillow and puts the money there? How do you get the teeth? And, and how much yeah. money do you leave under the pillow? <laughs> yeah. So we definitely work to be very competitive with the uh, traditional tooth fairy. Um, I always you know tell kids that I have a, a great relationship with the tooth fairy. And it's interesting, actually. So sometimes um, moms will send teeth directly to us and they don't want to tell their kids about me, the science tooth fairy. Other times moms want to tell their kids that there's this alternative and that in addition to sending some teeth to the tooth fairy, they can also send teeth to the science tooth fairy. And sometimes that's where kids say, you know, I want to send all my teeth to the science tooth fairy or they send me some of them. I, I would probably say to my mother at that time, it depends how much money you're going to leave under the yeah, pillow. <laughs> who's paying out more? Yeah. Uh, can you tell uh, from baby teeth, uh, it, can they be predictive of future issues in the health of that particular person? That's what we're hoping. So one of the challenges we have in the field of mental health is that it's really hard to identify people who will go on to experience mental health problems. And, you know, we use data like parents, you know, history, family history of, of disorder, but it doesn't always, um, it's not always a perfect record. And one of the things that we know is that exposure to stress early in development is a major risk factor for later mental health outcomes. So the hope is that if we can learn about stressors from teeth, that might be able to help us identify kids at greater risk of future mental health problems. I'm just curious, how many teeth roughly do you get a year? Oh, great question. So we we have partnerships with, so we collect teeth ourselves and then we have partnerships with um, a number of other studies. So right now in the lab, I think we have over 1,500 teeth wow. and more, you know, more that we're getting in. 1,500 teeth. That's right. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and, you're, and you're getting teeth just from the uh, Massachusetts area or all over the country? No. So like right now, actually, we have a study that we are recruiting participants for where we're um, trying to identify people from across the country who have may have had a stressor when they were um, pregnant or raising a newborn. 
Um, so if, if any of your listeners are interested, they can go to my website, teethforscience.com and learn more about that. So participants in that study would, you know, complete a web survey and then send in teeth to us. So that would be an example where maybe one participant donates, you know, up to 20 baby teeth. Um, sometimes we get, you know, one or two, but um, so it, it all depends on on how how uh, precious of a resource moms oftentimes mm. feel about those teeth and whether they want to part with them. If you need any adult teeth, I'm sure that Charles and I can uh, find something to disagree about, uh, get into a fist fight, and uh, maybe get one of ours. Most likely mine. Sound, sounds good. Well, yeah. we I always say I'll take any tooth that anyone wants to donate. I just don't want dog teeth. Ah, um, no okay. dog teeth. Okay, right. dog yeah, teeth. Yeah, no dog right. teeth. All right. Please. Thank you so much. That is the actual science tooth fairy, Dr. Aaron Dunn. You know, if you're saying people send in their teeth, I wonder if anyone by mistake actually sent them like dentures or something because they (laughs) they misunderstood what they're looking for. Or if someone starts sending in teeth and then it's more teeth than they could possibly have. That raises questions. (laughs) Where are you getting the extra teeth? We ask the deep questions here on KNX In-Depth. We're going to be back again on Tuesday. At one, because Monday's a holiday. Right. So we'll, we'll take another bite at the apple with our <laughs> teeth on Tuesday. <laughs>